Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Missing Stone podcast, where I interview conservationists about their path through their chosen field and the work they are doing today. This week, I was excited to speak with Dr. John Kamanowski, professor of biological sciences at Florida International University. I really enjoyed hearing about John's journey, entering his master's program uncertain of what he wanted to do before discovering freshwater ecology. We discussed several of the research projects John has worked on, including his role as the lead principal investigator for the Florida Coastal Everglades Long-Term Ecological Research Program, where he collects data on the impacts of rising sea level and saltwater intrusion on coastal wetlands. I was really excited that John wanted to use our time together not just to emphasize his research, but also to discuss the importance of being an educator and his role as a professor. One of the points John emphasizes is the importance of supporting early career researchers and vulnerable scientists that are part of his lab as undergraduate and graduate students. If you would like to learn more about the research John is doing both at his labs at FIU and as the lead principal investigator of the Florida Coastal Everglades Research Program, please follow the links in the description below. I hope you enjoyed this episode back to the Missing Stone podcast, everybody. I am so excited today to have Professor of Biological Sciences at Florida International University in the Department of Biological Sciences in the Institute of Environment, a little bit of a mouthful there, John Kamenowski. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a holiday break, end of the semester, so we're rolling into 2024. Any big holiday plans coming up? I know we had family down last week that visited and we went to the Keys for the week, which was great. And then it won't be, my mom won't hear this until after the holidays, but we're, I'm surprised around Christmas and the rest of my family in Chicago. And then uh, we're going to visit friends in uh, New Orleans. Ah, that sounds like an absolute blast. Though yeah. New Orleans sounds a little nicer this time of year than Chicago, not going to lie. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right. I'd love to dive in and get started with this and really ask, what was that first moment for you that drew you into conservation? Yeah, it was one of those things where I was starting a research program as a master in a master's program in Chicago at Loyola University. And I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I was studying taxonomy. I was studying insects. I love both. But I was helping my friend do research for her master's in an area near where I grew up. Now, she was from Brazil, from outside of Rio. And she was showing me someplace I had never been to just down the road from where I grew up. And it was a restoration of the Nippersink Creek, which runs through a state park in Illinois, in Northern Illinois. And it was there that I realized that I was fascinated by moving water and the ability of a restoration to bring something back that had been transformed basically by human agricultural land management. And to be able to look at that in the water and in the organisms that live in the water was just fascinating to me. And so you said you were looking to start a master's program when you were getting introduced to all of this. So that's for a lot of people in conservation, 
they find conservation at different points in their life, but many start young and have this focus on one thing for a long time. Finding your why at going into a master's, did you ever feel a little behind your peers or did you always feel like you were there and running with everybody else? No, I grew up as an outside kid with a field behind the house, not realizing that was an element of conservation that I would later then come to want to study. But what happened in college for me was I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And so I went into that very focused, realized I didn't want to be that in like year two, and had heard that people were taking some ecology classes, but didn't really know anything about ecology, didn't take them because I didn't have enough time in my schedule. And then got to the end of undergraduate and realized I didn't want to be in the health profession and took two years off and didn't know really what to do. So I didn't even really know what to do when I was going into my master's. So I started a program not with firm ideas and without much passion, just saying, oh, I should get a master's in biology since I have an undergraduate degree in biology. And it was in the program within the first three months that I realized I'm in the wrong lab. I need now I know exactly what I want to do. And I know it's about water. So I did feel behind, especially at that moment, because I had to shift gears in a master's program, change advisors, and sit in on classes there at Loyola University and with undergraduates to catch up on what I didn't take as an undergraduate. So I was shadowing or auditing a lot of classes, especially ecology classes, while I was studying my master's. And that's a lot of work to be doing. So what was the question? Did you know right away what question you wanted to ask for your master's? Or did you take some time, volunteer with your friend, and then ultimately later on decide a question? So... It happened probably in hindsight faster than I would necessarily anticipate it happening for most people. I was working with her. She was studying, my friend was studying aquatic insects. And so they most aquatic insects are larvae and in the aquatic phase, and then they become adults. Mostly they become flying adults. And she was using them as biological indicators. I was familiar with that concept, but I wasn't necessarily ready to dive into tackling um, that kind of a question in the same way that she was. What I had always been fascinated with was um, studying the relationship between the land and the water. And so I, 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 was, I didn't know I wanted to be a conservation ecologist, but I knew I loved the edges of things. And when I realized that water was my thing and I could study it, I started getting really interested in land-water interactions, which led me to ask some questions that my then new advisor was testing. So she, at the time, was studying these had these experimental chambers that she grew trees in at elevated atmospheric CO2, which she was doubling. At the time, atmospheric CO2 was 360 parts per million, and it's now well over 400. But she was doubling it to 720 parts per million. So I was then saying, what happens to 
all that organic matter that comes off of these trees that have different chemistry and how does that affect the water chemistry? So I took, that was my question and then spun some, something else where, you know, a lot of um, aquatic systems have algae growing in them. And so I said, do the algae respond to any of those chemical changes? And then we took it a step further and said, crayfish are a common aquatic invertebrate and they are very sensitive to chemistry. Can they sense differences in those chemical structures? And so we've tied together more of a food web, chemical ecology kind of question. So were was it purposeful at that point to be studying ultimately climate change then? Or was this just something that was more historically interesting since the earth earth in the past had higher levels of carbon dioxide oh no it was definitely driven by an understanding or trying to understand the consequences of climate change the research was funded uh, my advisor's research was funded through the national science foundation trying to show that trees might grow fast with elevated co2 because they take in co2 but that there's a consequence of that and the fact is that they end up unless they can find other resources they end up becoming higher in carbon and lower in other elements and that's bad it can be bad for things that eat the trees or eat the leaves on the trees because they have certain requirements that now they're getting less of so So what oh so what findings did you have in terms of how did that impact both water chemistry and then the plants and invertebrates in that water? Okay, sure. So what happens when leaves fall into rivers and wetlands and lakes is that they leach a lot of water-soluble compounds. Like when you make tea, it turns the water colored. And some of those compounds are colored and some of those compounds aren't colored, but a lot of those compounds are carbon-based. And so we predicted and found that there would be more carbon leaching out of leaves and that would create a higher carbon concentration in the water. And what we did is we manipulated that. So we took different concentrations, we took the different CO2 enriched leaves and made leachate or tea that had different carbon concentrations, dissolved carbon concentrations. And then we basically cultivated or grew algae in those different kinds of water. And the algae were coming off of a stream at a artificial stream, basically pump water out of a stream and run it through gutters. And then you colonize algae, put those tiles that the algae are on into a chamber with this leachate water, this tea from higher and lower CO2. And what we found was that the algae that grow had more, they they had more defense compounds in them if they were exposed to higher carbon dioxide enriched dissolved organic carbon. So basically, there's more of a specialization towards algae that have defense compounds. Those defense compounds have some anti herbivore properties to them. And ultimately, crayfish because blue they're basically blue green algae that have some toxins associated with them and crayfish could sense that and so when we did these little we called it a y maze where the 
the crayfish could choose to spend time in one arm of the Y or the other, and they spent less time in the elevated CO2 treatment because those algae had more cyanobacteria that they don't like. That's pretty interesting research, just seeing the effects that one thing has so many ways down the food chain. I know, I'm sure there's people listening who have done similar research, but I'm sure there's a lot who aren't in the field where when you really start to break down those research projects, it's really cool seeing those compounding effects and how you actually go about studying each section. So from there, you ultimately have stayed in academia, from what I can tell, from graduating with your master's. And then did you end up pursuing a PhD? Yeah, as soon as I got into the right lab at Loyola and had a a clear vision for my master's, I knew I wanted to continue for a PhD. And I was partnering with some people from different universities because my research was at a biological station. And so I was getting exposed. That was at the University of Michigan Biological Station. So I was getting exposed to students from and advisors from different universities. And my master's advisor said, go someplace big. (laughs) And so I said, okay, I grew up in the Midwest. University of Wisconsin is a big school and a great school. But then I thought, maybe I should leave the Midwest. And so I had spent, I had gone to a, a science conference one year when I was in my master's and I was blown away by the students at the University of Georgia who were presenting all this research. And I thought they must get good training. And I know that's one of the top schools for ecology at the time. And so I applied, got in and just ran with it. But yes, I did a PhD at the University of Georgia in ecology. That's awesome. And then, so you did your PhD and then I saw you did two different postdoc stints and then found your way to Florida International. So what were some of the highlights between the PhD and the postdocs getting to do a lot of research? What were some of those highlights of what you were able to pursue? Yeah, so the the big highlights that I would say are getting to explore different systems. So growing growing up in the Midwest, things are temperate, there things freeze and you have and things are flat and there's more grasslands and savannas and open space and there's more natural lakes. But then in the southeast, learning about the deep history between the forest harvesting that's occurred in that region and the reforestation in the southern Appalachians and just studying systems that are really geologically old and evolutionarily old um, because the Appalachians are some of the oldest mountains we think in in the on earth and so they're biodiverse it's a biodiversity hotspot so being able to work in that region in the southeastern U.S. was really cool because there was so much to learn so much new to learn and then it was i wasn't at a a biological station i was at a a hype station so things were more forest watershed oriented and hydrologically oriented and so um, i was learning more science like the science of not necessarily at the time forestry but the science of hydrology and learning from the, that was also at a long-term ecological research site 
called Coweta Hydrologic Laboratory. And that was essential for me. Having a huge graduate cohort, I was one of, I think, 120 students at the University of Georgia at the time. And most of us were field ecologists that would spend time year-round outside doing our measurements and then come back to campus and share ideas. So having that that scholarship and that community was really important. And so when I was looking for postdocs, I happened, I was pretty fortunate. I had three different options. I was thinking of going to UCSB, Santa Barbara. So there was an option there. Northern Arizona University was another option. And then I again said, maybe I need to go someplace different. Maybe I need to go international. So I was able to get in at University of British Columbia in Canada. And what was fascinating about that is that UBC is a fantastic school and British Columbia is beautiful. But there was also a research station and it was an actively logged, managed forest station called Malcolm Knapp Research Forest. So very similar types of watersheds, different mountains, different forests as I was working in the Southeast, but now I'm in the Northeast and I'm literally like having to use a CB radio to tell the logging trucks where I'm at so that when they're running down the mountain with a full load, I can ditch, which I did have to do at one point. So what were some of the challenges you found in changing your research sites so drastically from Midwest to southeast to northeast were there any challenges in how you approached your research or did you find that just by applying the same methods you're it's really just the location that's different yeah that's a good question because i'm this sort of a strategist so when i went from the southeast to the northwest i wanted to ask similar questions that i had in my phd as a postdoc but i really the challenge is, is that you always have to relearn or learn the ecology of the new place. and But that's fun for me. So it required a lot of dedication to reading the literature and partnering with people there. But then the things that I couldn't do or had only just scratched the surface of in my PhD, I was able to um, build on. So specifically, I was looking at the forest, how the structure of the forest influences the energy that enters the stream as leaves and how that affects the biodiversity of the, in this case now, macroinvertebrates and microorganisms. And I had done some of that in the Southeast, but it was set up really nicely to be able to do that there at UBC. And the challenge I think was just being willing to embrace learning and a steep learning curve which is fun. Yeah, it's such a different ecosystem to have to learn each time. And one of the big factors when you're in academia is making the right connections and ultimately networking well and keeping those connections. What were some of the key connections you made from your master's through your postdocs that maybe you still have to this day? Yeah, you are right. Those connections matter. I think when I, from my master's to my PhD, the big connection for me 
was that my master's advisor and my PhD advisor were good colleagues. So there was a connection there that kind of enabled me, gave me a little bit of a pass, I think, because I think I submitted my application late to the program, which turns out this happens all the time. Like I'm excited about a student coming in the fall that he missed the deadline. And like these deadlines are not on students' radars per se, because they're somewhat arbitrary deadlines. So because my master's and PhD advisors were colleagues, I got a second look. Also, I didn't have the highest GRE score, but I had really high GPA. Now people, now programs don't really care about the GRE. They realize it's not a good reflection of success in grad school. And I think I probably wouldn't have gotten in had I not visited stood my ground in saying, I know I can do this because I just finished a master's in a year and a half after not knowing what I wanted to do the first six months. But also, I think that that having that connection of advisor to advisor made a huge difference. For my postdoc, my first postdoc, the postdoc that was in that lab left to do a postdoc at Georgia, but at the Georgia Coastal Ecosystem LTER. So we switched spots. So there was a connection there. She was really interested in handing it off to somebody that knew that because she had started the project, got pregnant, had twins, and then they moved. And she's, I want this in good hands. And so there was a connection there. And she still lives in the Northwest. And so I think that mattered because even though my postdoc advisor chose me, she, as the outgoing postdoc, had a major influence on me getting selected. And then when I was up there at UBC, knowing that my one of my committee members from my PhD had just gotten a grant funded, and that I and my husband, who lived back in Athens, wanted to be together, I simply reached out and said, would you hire me as a postdoc on your new grant so that I can come back after this postdoc to be back home. And I couldn't have done that necessarily without that member, that person having been my committee member. Yeah. Those are some connections are extremely important. And you actually just touched on at the end there, but before we dive into kind of your current research and projects, which I really want to talk about, I do want to take a moment to just ask you because you navigated Eco- the field of ecology and conservation as a member of the LGBTQ. So for those who are listening, who are part of that community and want to pursue a similar career, what would be your advice to them? And maybe a little bit of your story in the field as well. Sure. I think it's really important for people to self-identify and to be aware of their importance and their power. And also as an advisor, I try to foster that in my students, allowing them to figure themselves out as scientists and as people. And so without telling them who they are. And I think for a lot of students are vulnerable people, the the graduate students, undergraduate students and graduate students and postdocs are in 
positions where they are figuring out what they want to be and who they are. And one thing I would say is focus on having a passion as well as focus on figuring out how to identify yourself personally and professionally. And that those two things aren't always those three things, passion, personality, and profession are not always easy to figure out. And that you need the right advisor. I did not have the right advisor when I first started in my master's. And had I stayed, I wouldn't have probably continued in academia at all. So because I left in my master's and found a new advisor, not only did I stay in academia, I went went on to my PhD, postdoc, et cetera. So I think finding allies is critical no matter who you are. And we need you. Like we need all people. So just keep pushing your passion. That's great. And I really want to touch on because you mentioned you want to talk about the leadership factor as a professor and supporting early career and vulnerable scientists. But I want to end a little bit on that note and maybe touch on some of the research that you are currently doing first. So I don't know if you just want to share kind of some of the main projects you're working on or if there's one project you want to focus on. Yeah, I'll talk about a few. So I'm the lead principal investigator for the Florida Coastal Everglades long-term ecological research program, which is a program of, there's multiple sites throughout the United States, there's 27 sites throughout the United States and hundreds of international long-term ecological research sites around the world. What we do in the Florida Coastal Everglades is we try to understand how rising sea levels and saltwater intrusion are changing the coastal wetlands and urbanizing areas of South Florida. We mostly do our research in Everglades National Park. Um, We're also rapidly, um, fiercely focused and rapidly understanding the role of restoration, freshwater restoration. So the Everglades is the world's largest uh, restoration effort ever attempted in size and in finance. So it's a huge undertaking and a huge opportunity. So what we do in long-term research in the Everglades is we collect continuous data, mostly on plants, soils, animals, both fish and marine mammals and birds, water chemistry, and try to really understand the structure of wetlands in the Everglades is a vast, low productivity marsh, mostly freshwater marsh, but becoming more brackish and has really productive mangroves on its coast and also has extensive seagrasses in Florida Bay. So it's a beautiful mosaic of different ecosystems and we study how water connects them. And we study a lot about hurricane responses and how hurricanes can be, they can be fertilizers because this in a positive way, they can help the produce the coastal elevation that we need to maintain rising soils. So mangroves build a lot of soils and the ocean in South Florida, at least the Gulf of Mexico is a really, is a source of energy and a source of nutrients for 
the Everglades. In some ways unique to the United States, but in many ways not unique to the Caribbean, the Everglades is what's called a reverse estuary. So it relies on the ocean to enhance it. And so phosphorus coming from the Gulf of Mexico is a subsidy to the system. So we study that and hurricanes push a lot of phosphorus in when they come in. Yeah, they damage trees, but the trees that are resilient, that come back, come back with more rapidity, they come back faster and they tend to be stimulated by the, the hurricanes. But we're also noticing that hurricanes in some areas that are lower lying, where the soil isn't growing as fast, that those die often after hurricanes. And so we're studying the extent of that die-off of mangrove in the coast and how some of that is driven by stress from sea level and inability to keep up with sea level rise. We, in the restoration area, what's really exciting is the Everglades had wetlands that should be wet year round that would go dry for three months out of the year because the Everglades got hydrologically modified when people moved down and built cities and farms. And what's happened in the central Everglades, which feeds into Everglades National Park, is that the road, Tamiami Trail, that's been in place for over 100 years, it served as a block to water that was moving to the south. And in the last 10 years, that road has been become uh, bridged in sections. And so that allows for water to flow underneath it. And we've been uh, studying the responses of the wetlands to that. And in some ways, the wetlands are responding, changing in their composition. But in other ways, they just stay the same because the wetlands that dried down get invaded by cattails and trees that are native and non-native species that kind of just stay in place and they're hard to remove. So we study the effect of the hydrology and other types of restoration strategies that are needed to get the system looking and functioning more like it did. But, and yeah. There's a lot of questions I really want to ask about the different research you're doing down there. But before I do, I'd actually like you to explain to people listening, since most probably don't have a lot of knowledge or experience with the Everglades, having gone to school or done my master's in Florida, I sometimes take for granted my Florida ecosystem knowledge. So I'd love to to have you just give a quick explanation of, you mentioned the impact of people moving in and blocking that water, but there's also impacts with water use, lowering water tables. And so how have how has the Everglades been impacted over the last hundred years with people moving in? Yeah, great question. You'd think we'd have a clearer picture. This The reality is the Everglades was changed before we understood it. In some ways, we know exactly what's happened. More land was lost in the Everglades, more wetland was lost, about 50% of the wetland area was lost and continues to be threatened by land conversion in the boundary areas of the Everglades. Florida, if you look at Florida, the Everglades starts in Orlando and it ends 
in the keys like it ends in in florida bay so it's half of the state and it's one it's the water source for one in every three people who live in the state and so it's a huge resource and so to shrink that resource down by 50 percent means that it goes it it becomes a system that floods and dries because there's not enough area for the water when it's really wet and so some of the ways in which it's what's happened is even though we've controlled a lot of the hydrology we've also made it so that droughts and floods are worse and so by keeping some areas dry they get overwhelmed when it's wet and other areas flood when they shouldn't be flooded so that's a big challenge that everglades restoration is trying to remedy the other thing that's happened is that we've used the Everglades to produce a lot of food and a lot of subsidized food or food products, sugar. So you might argue that we shouldn't be using the America's Everglades to produce sugar, but there's a lot of invested interest in sugar production, and it's a very important economic driver of the state agriculture tourism and real estate are the three pillars of the state's economy but sugar requires a lot of fertilizer and it also causes land to go dry because it they move the water out to allow the sugar to grow and what that's done is it's polluted a lot of the water especially around lake okeechobee and lake okeechobee is a large it's the largest freshwater lake that is in the united states only so the great lakes are the biggest lakes in the some of the biggest lakes in the world but they're in canada and the us so lake o lake okeechobee is the largest freshwater body in the united states and it's extremely polluted and it's shallow so what happens is it's really windy in florida and the lake bottom always gets churned up and so it's always getting stuff resuspended off the, the bottom of it, which means that anything that settles to the bottom that's phosphorus or nutrients in it gets resuspended. Lake Okeechobee has a really frightening history. It was the lake, the reason why a lot of the water management has come in South Florida is because in the 19 teens, Lake Okeechobee flooded several times and killed thousands of people that were working in the fields below it because it's a very fertile land area. And so after those floods, things really became serious in terms of hydrologic engineering by the Army Corps. So pollution, land loss, and then the urban development of the coast has threatened the Everglades in a lot of ways because the water that we're trying to use to push Everglades restoration and water into the right areas oftentimes doesn't get to where it needs to go because of people being in the way, or we can't flood that area because people live there, or there's a demand for the fresh water such that there's a lot of groundwater pumping, which draws the water table down, which causes salt water to intrude, which causes the Everglades to get saltier. So all these things are happening at a time when the climate is also changing. More people are moving to states in the Southeast and including Florida 
they drink water, they live in homes, and they cause unwillingly cause stress to the system. So trying to make people aware of that and find ways to balance and harmonize those needs is some of the biggest challenges we face. So as you're doing these long-term research studies down in the Everglades that are hopefully recording positive influence from trying to fix some of these issues, but what is the data that you're specifically trying to collect or prioritizing when you're doing these long-term studies? Yeah. So the data that we, those are the, that's a trickier question to answer than it is to ask. (laughs) It's, we want it all. We want all the data that we can get our hands on. What we do is we have core areas of data that we collect. We collect water chemistry, and those variables are really important in this system as in other systems as well. But the Everglades has a federal criterion to keep water at a certain concentration of phosphorus. So water that comes into the Everglades National Park has to be at that standard. And if it's above it, that's we that becomes problematic. And water constant water phosphorus concentrations is very critical. And we measure that all over the place, as do other agencies. And even the Seminole and Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida, they are actively measuring water chemistry. Water level and water level variability matter a lot in this system because we're super flat. We're very We're subtropical, but we're basically tropical, and we have a lot of water that comes through rain and also water that comes through the ground. So understanding the variability in water level and where the water is coming from is really important in this, in in Everglades uh, restoration. The invasive species, of course, Burmese python, infamous invasive species that's reduced our um, mammal populations communities by 90 percent so that's a huge problem that the everglades has faced keeping invasive species out or lower is a big problem in a very open system like the everglades that has this urban wildland interface so understanding their population size sizes is really challenging and important using and i said water level for the system water level also for the organisms like wading birds so wading birds can't feed if the water is too deep and there's not enough energy to produce the fish that they eat if the water is too low or it goes dry so the very the seasonal variability in water the managed variability and the climate variability really matters in this system. And we've seen really strong responses positively to how water is managed in terms of migratory bird, wading bird populations. And I think it was in, I think it was in 2020 or 2021, the recipe was right. And in the water conservation areas north of Everglades National Park, there was a boon of wading birds that year, which was positive. And then also a really kind of iconic and bright note is that the flamingo has returned to Florida. It had left or been locally extirpated, so locally extinct 
for its for its feathers, but also because the Everglades wasn't supporting it habitat-wise. But the so it was thought that the flamingo wasn't native to Florida, but it is, and it's coming back. That's absolutely awesome. And that water level in terms of wading birds, I hadn't really thought of that. But when I spent a night out on one of the wooden platforms, those chickies out in Hell's Bay, the first time I was out there, I remember seeing dolphins actually come in and feeding in that bay. And that's four, five, six miles into the Everglades system that these dolphins are able to navigate. And I remember they'd catch fish and the half their body would be out of the water and they'd have to wriggle their way back in. So it's pretty, I never really thought of that water level in terms of wildlife that way, but it, yeah, the the fact that you got such a boon in wading birds that flamingos are back is absolutely amazing. A hundred percent. And they call it shark Valley because sharks come up, bull sharks come up into the marsh in uh, the dry season, because the water, the fresh water and the salt water are moving back and forth against each other. And during the dry season, which we just started, rains stop or slow and the salt water moves in and the marsh animals are moving passively or actively into the, the middle, the estuary. And that's where all the feeding frenzy is. That's so, awesome. And when you're seeing increased salinity, because you said you've been seeing an increased salinity in the Everglades, is that the brackish water has a higher concentration of salt or that there's a larger area of brackish water? Both, we think. So a lot of the water that, so there's different types of, there's surface water and groundwater sources of brackish water. So the Everglades is largely a peat dominated so plant matter that's partially decaying forming a soil that's like a sponge and that sits on top of our limestone calcium carbonate which is very porous but some parts of the everglades don't have as much peat or don't have really any peat they have what's called marl which is when the limestone dissolves and then reforms and it's like a flocky flowery material and groundwater can have sources it, marine groundwater can increase from into the what's called the pore water so where the plants roots are and we're seeing that groundwater salinities are getting higher in areas as well as surface water salinities so surface water sits on top of brackish water or marine water it's less dense and you need more of it to flush out the salt water. And in in the poor water, once the salt water gets in, it's hard, really hard to get it out. And we, for an, just an exa- as an example, we had a site that we were working in where we were manipulate, we were adding artificial seawater above ambient conditions, and we were trying to get it higher in the poor water. So we'd have to add higher concentration and let it sink into the poor water. And while we were doing that, it happened to be a drought year, one of those years. And the ambient conditions went from the concentration being eight parts per thousand in the poor water up to 12 in a year. So it happens pretty fast and can stay for a while if it ever goes away. That's the idea that something can 
fluctuate that quickly and have such an impact. I'd love to take a second before we dive into the leadership side of being a professor, just ask for, since I feel like with the Everglades, there's a lot of negatives in the news. You mentioned the invasive species issue, um, the lack of water making it to the Everglades. I feel like there's a lot of negativity around what's going to happen to the Everglades. So what's Hmm. a big positive or a restoration win that you've (laughs) seen in recent years that you'd love to highlight? Okay. This one is going to be one that deals with the Florida Panther. So the Florida Panther has in the eighties, it was nearly extinct. So it's a Puma concolor genus and species, and it's it's a subspecies, if you will, of the other cougars, mountain lions, pumas. And so they crossbred it in the 80s with the Texas panther. And because habitat loss was causing it to have genetic inbreeding, and so they wanted to increase its genetic diversity. And so that was a win in the 80s. But what's happened is that since the 80s, the population of Florida has almost doubled. So the habitat loss has continued, not necessarily in wetlands, but in areas around the Everglades. Yes, they are wetlands, but cypress forests. So areas in Southwest Everglades, which is the panther habitat, have been continued to be built upon. And so the panther habitat has continued to shrink. And what's positive about this, and it's happening right now, is that the Florida legislation is helping to create a wildlife corridor, helping to work with ranchers in the center of the state who don't see the panther as a threat to their livestock or see human development more as a threat. And they don't want to lose their land and they don't want to lose their way of life. There's a lot of Florida cowboys that ranch. And so Florida has a lot of cattle and those cattle are actually, and the ranching is actually protecting the land from development. So they're working um, with conservationists, folks that are studying the Florida Panther. And um, I was able to participate in the a screening of the movie, The Path of the Panther, which is phenomenal. It's a documentary that National Geographic put out last year. And there's a book also. And the photographer is um, Carlton Ward Jr., who's a Florida photographer who does phenomenal work and did a lot of wildlife camera photography in um, Africa for his PhD and then came back to Florida. And what he shows in this film, in this documentary, is that the Panthers are moving along the wildlife corridor. So they the wildlife corridor starts in the Everglades and moves along the center of the state and connects ranch lands, the Everglades to ranch lands, to national forests and state lands. And um, so it's, you know, it's a statewide wildlife corridor that is showing that the panthers are able to adapt and even though they're losing habitat in their their native area, they're recognizing and being able to utilize these ranch lands and move through the center of the state. So 
to me, that's really exciting because when I was asked to serve on this panel and it involved Carlton Ward Jr. and Betty Osceola, who's a big conservationist from the Miccosukee tribe, they were really, it's a partnership. So it's a partnership of people and different sovereign nation of the sovereignty of the Miccosukee people, the state of Florida, private landowners, and the public and scientists. And it's all through collaboration. And so one thing that often doesn't get recognized as much in Florida is that there is a lot of collaboration around the environment. The fact that the Everglades has the conservate the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan is because the state and the federal government have often worked well together with state universities and so and, and with a- agencies, federal and state agencies. So it's a pretty phenomenal place to work if you study the environment. It has its major challenges, but I feel like because it's has so many challenges that are seemingly existential at times, people tend to want to help. So the Florida Panther is a huge bright spot. The the Flamingo returning is a huge bright spot. And so I have to ask, since you're primarily focused on water, do you see benefits with this long wildlife corridor on waterways is there going to be is that going to help because i actually i've been to some of that ranch land and a lot of them have areas that are drastically flooded both wet and dry season so is that really going to help the waterways as well in terms of preserving some of that flow through the state we think so there's some examples of where ranch management so it's called the MacArthur Ranch, which is part of Archbold Biological Station, which is in the center. The It's called the Lake Wales Ridge. And they're doing a lot of burning and grazing and other forms of ranch management to understand the carbon sequestration and the nutrient retention benefits and how water is kept on the surface versus channelized, you know, channelization is not good. It runs off and things don't absorb. And so they're really working as like a research ranch to better understand how to have both wins for the environment and wins for ranchers. And I think that is going to help and help Everglades restoration in, in a lot of ways, because if we have more and more development in the center of the state, which is also rapidly growing, we have more stress on the water and we have more water routing in terms of storm water, which then causes whole loads of problems with wetlands. So that's awesome. So transitioning now, I could talk to you about the research you're doing for hours, but I want to respect your time and make sure we we get into the leadership component. So you stress that as a professor, the leadership side and supporting early career and vulnerable scientists is really important. So I'd love for you to just be able to expand on what you mean by that. Sure. So I think I recognize that it's a hard field, academic academic fields in general, ecology is a hard field in terms of getting jobs. In, in the university. And so I feel really fortunate, even though I worked really hard, I know a lot of people who work really hard or 
didn't make it or made it or whatever. There's so many potential turns that people take on their path. And so I feel really fortunate. And I think that level of satisfaction and gratitude has afforded me the ability to look to help others in ways that help the field and help science public engagement and um, help retention of ideas in the academy and, and new ideas and diverse ideas. And so one thing that as a lead of a research program, one thing that I get to do is I really get to advocate for people and encourage them to step into leadership positions because it's a project that's run by, we have more than 150 collaborators. We have 90 who are very active and we have a large research team. And so what I've done with our research teams is try to encourage collaboration and try to encourage early career leadership roles and mentoring within the program. And so I do that in our research program, but I, I also do that through our university. So our university has an academic faculty mentoring program, and I think I mentor three or so faculty. And I think what it ends up becoming for me is recognizing that, so I maybe it's because the field that I am in ecology is interdisciplinary, and then I'm an ecosystem ecologist, which means that I study large systems and I study different types of systems. And I always need to collaborate because the work that we do in large system studies requires a lot of hands and minds. And so it's never done by one. And you recognize very quickly where what your limits are and everybody has them. And the benefit of that is that you don't feel like you have to know everything. And so you need to include people. So it might be easier for me because of who I am or what I study that enables me to think of other people when I'm building a research program or when I'm thinking about my field and the future of my field. So one thing that I do to try to build the future of the field, I developed a writing course that I think science writing is really critical. It's the bread and butter of academic research. If you can't write well, then you can't get funding. If you can't get funding, you can't do the research. And if you can't do the research and you're not writing, then you can't publish. And it's all about writing and learning how to take information or take data to create information and knowledge. And so this writing class teaches graduate students, how to take their data, tell a story with it, get critical feedback, give critical feedback. And it's a semester long. We treat it as a mock peer review throughout the entire semester. So once they know the pieces of what a story is, once they know the pieces of science writing, and once they figure out how to tell their story and write it, then they then we run it through the mill. It gets lots of peer review and they give and receive feedback throughout the semester. And then at the end, the hope is that it's ready to go to a journal. And I needed that. I didn't, I had that, I did have that as a graduate student. I had one class that was offered that changed my thinking and my ability to write. And I also had a dedicated advisor. And so one thing I do as 
vulnerable people, the way to keep to make people less vulnerable is to empower them. And in science, the way to be empowered is to know how to write really well and to communicate really well. And that's what I do. And so with my students, my lab, we have weekly, biweekly, one-on-one meetings, and it's all about their work. And it's a process. And so we start that process from the beginning with them. So I work with them very I wouldn't say hands-on, I'm at arm's length. (laughs) So there's a couple points I want to ask questions on that. And the first is, what's the area you've found that people coming in who are interested in becoming a scientist, that biggest disconnect when it does come to scientific writing? What area do you see people struggling with the most? I think they struggle with the most with understanding that writing as I had said, is a process by that. You take something and you it looks or reads horribly. You get it written, do it, and then, and everyone writes differently. So for some people, they can skip that step. For most people can't. And it requires you to have sort of a brain dump on a page or on a screen where you're just trying to get your ideas down. Also sharing ideas being able to share your ideas without fear is huge. That master's idea that I told you about, I tell this to my students in my writing class and all my students. I shared that. I shared it with a student who, or a postdoc, a then postdoc who took it and did the work. And I found out about it when I went to write my first paper and updated the literature. And there was that person's paper with my idea. And it could have crushed me. And it did a little bit. But what I did is I turned it around and said, now I get to cite their paper and build on it in my discussion. And they didn't do this that I did. And wow, I guess it's like the best compliment is somebody taking your ideas. But then I got to thinking that ideas are worth sharing. And if you share enough of them, you'll have more ideas, right? So There's really not too much of a risk. You have to be careful, but you should not be afraid to share your ideas early and get them to be stronger. And you mentioned that everyone has a different writing style. So I found this when I was going through my master's that some people are great at fostering others' writing styles. And when you hand your paper to certain people, it's just going to get shifted into their style and you're going to have all these edits and you're going to go through and very few are very important to the integrity but a lot of it's stylistic so how do you go about when you're working with so many people on so many papers making sure that you're not trampling over somebody else's writing style yeah that's that's good question one thing i do is i try to see I try to find what is exciting about what's being written. And I what I've learned is that it's easy to just criticize people's work. That's the easy part. So it's easy to go in and make someone else's work fall apart or bleed, but it's hard to construct something from what they've done and help redirect it. And that often takes, it actually takes less time. <laughs> So if people would recognize that it takes less time to, it takes more time, but it's easier to to tear down somebody's work, but to find a new way of 
framing it and leaving it to them to build it in that way or suggesting it that way takes less time and is more constructive. And so I learned to give less critical, less technically critical feedback. And I say, I see a lot of errors here. You need to fix those. I'm not going to spend time with that, but do that. And then also here's some like broad overview ideas. Here's some specifics. So when I teach my writing class and we do the peer review, I have students follow a review rubric where I say, this is what I want to see from you about your peers paper. And you should expect to see the same from them. And so you've got a sense of here's what's going well with the paper. Here's what's not clear. Here's here's what I see that needs improvement in these areas. And then these are some specific things like you missed a comma, you need to spell check, whatever. Giving people different sets of feedback that's specific and higher level, I think has been really helpful for me to not, I, I don't want to rewrite somebody. I don't have time to rewrite somebody else's stuff. That definitely makes sense. It takes quite a while to to rewrite. So the last thing I want to ask you about, since this has come up in more than one of my recent podcasts, when it comes to people who are more on the advocacy side of conservation, they'll bring up that some of science communication for them is that professors or people in academia, researchers feel less comfortable making grand statements off of their research rather than just simply presenting their findings and moving on to the next project. So I'd love to ask you your opinions on they feel or the people I was speaking with feel that in academia can sometimes blacklist you, if you will, if you make too many suggestions or recommendations based off of the work you do rather than, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, letting that work speak for itself. So I'd love to hear your opinions on that side. Yeah, I think it, I think it probably depends on how cutting edge, novel and controversial the work is. And in terms of the overreach, you never want to overreach with the work that you do, you want to be cautious with interpreting information. I think recommendations from research are often a good way of taking your research and not saying that the findings will apply everywhere, but that they could, that they could be tested in this way to build on it. I think the work won't speak for itself. You have to speak for it and you have to speak for it in different ways to different people. That's not to say that you say different information, but the vocabulary, the narrative that you use to explain the work and the application of the work or the value of the work or the importance of the work is going to be different for different groups of people based on what they care about. So one thing that I did learn from taking a science communication workshop from the Alan Alda Center was that you science communication, which is essentially what we're talking about here, is about learning how to do improvisation. So you end up, me, if I want to sell you on what I'm doing and get you to think about it and care about it, I need to know what you care about. And then we find a commonality. So I don't tell you 
I ask you and then talk with you. It's more of, of a dynamic. And I, I build what I do around things that you care about. So otherwise, it's hard to get you to want to listen to me and make a change about how you think based on what I'm telling you. So I think the work doesn't speak for itself and you have to be persistent, but cautious and adaptive in how you communicate the work. And I I actually really that answer because I think it is one of those where a lot of people who are on the advocacy side are specifically fighting for change in an issue. Whereas when you're on the research side, you still are on that discovery side of things. And so it is going to sound different, but I really liked your line of the work's not going to speak for itself because I think that really stands out. So I love to end the podcast with the same four questions to every guest, especially since the backgrounds people bring in really impact how they answer these questions. So these are going to be very broad-based conservation questions. You can go as fast or spend as much time on them as you'd like. And the first is, what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? I think the part that needs to be attended to the most with respect to conservation is for people to value it. Value it and how it directly affects them and other people physically, emotionally, etc. And then also to see it as an ethical responsibility that we all have, not just somebody else's responsibility. That's definitely that you were talking about kind of the communication side of everything and being able to actively write about what you're discovering. And that really plays into trying to get other people to then really care and value conservation. That's definitely an important factor. And so the second one is what areas of conservation do you want to see grow? That's a good question. That's tough. Ah, the growth (laughs) of conservation. I guess when I wrote that, it's trying to see where people glom onto in terms of certain types of restoration versus education versus focusing on I spoke with somebody who else who does water work in in Florida and so each of their answers were getting how to get more eyes on water and For the sure. issues surrounding water it doesn't have to be something to drastic or overarching but just when i say what area would you like to see grow what really came to mind first for you it was expanding wild habitat and water resources i when you said allowing it to grow i was thinking about one thing i read years ago from a book by bruce babbitt called cities in the wilderness He said, if we had only made our riparian floodplains and coastal areas all national parks or preserves, we would have really benefited ourselves. And of course, that's not possible, but wouldn't it be awesome to have those margins, the land-water interface that I spoke about, which integrates the, the land and the water, if we could 
conserve floodplains and coastal environments, I think, and rehabilitate those more with climate and with climate change and, and the challenges related to that, we need more of those areas and we don't have enough of them. And it is interesting because a lot of those areas were built upon, yet they don't exactly make for a great surface to build upon. You're dealing with floods constantly, or you look at um, Disney World built on Martian swampland, and it, it takes so much maintenance to prevent that from constantly flooding and being inundated with water. So it's not like these areas are ones that benefit us greatly in terms of having land. You can get some farming out of them, but but there's not a lot of use. And there's a lot of vulnerability in building on them and maintaining them. There was just an article this week about the massive undertaking in Washington, D.C. and built in a floodplain, <laughs> our nation's capital, and a lot of vulnerable resources there. So the third question is, what concerns you about the future of conservation? And these may have overlap. <laughs> yeah, I think, honestly, I think the thing that concerns me the most is that we have a hard time. Right now we have a lot of war and we are not valuing humans and human rights. And so I'm concerned that conservation will be a luxury and it's not. I, I think there's a concern I have that only people that can afford to care about conservation will or do. That's a huge factor. And I think part of that can stem from, and I'd love to hear your opinion. I found when I was doing my master's, a lot of the concert or a lot of the conversations that we were having, the discussions, when you try to bring in the human component and say, as much as I agree with you that XYZ should be done, I disagree that the community is going to care about XYZ and that XYZ can be done. And that would get that position would get a lot of pushback. And so I'd love to hear your opinion just on the human component and how much we need communities to support conservation movements. I think we need industry and commerce to support it too. I think when you were talking, I was thinking, gosh, I think of every time I go to the grocery store and I look on labels to make sure what I'm buying doesn't say palm kernel oil, because I know that it's causing the loss of habitat in Indonesia. And don't and probably people don't probably don't know that. Like every time you eat an Oreo or anything really processed, that it's coming from the loss of jungle and places where elephants and tigers are coexisting with rhinos and their most endangered tropical forests in the planet, and they're burning and they're sinking. And so I think communities of consumers, <laughs> we need to care. And we need to be aware of this and not forget it. I was in Sumatra and visited that national park that's deep in Sumatra. And I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was featured in the Obama narrated documentary of the national parks. And it, it was fascinating because we drove three and a half, four hours from 
the airport to this park and it was all palm trees. And then you got to the edge and all the hotels are built amongst palm trees and you look across the river and it's all forest as far as the eye can see. And Mm -hmm. I will say what was fascinating was it was the least amount of life I've seen in a forest. We were there to see orangutan and saw plenty, but there was silence at times and a forest should never be silent. So it was very interesting seeing that, that edge contrast. Yeah. Yeah. So then the last question I have is advice to future conservationists. Advice. One, you don't have to be an academic scientist (laughs) at all. You can be a lifelong conservationist and you can be involved in conservation and not be at a university or a college or whatever. Uh, You don't even have to be a scientist. Just be somebody who care. If you are a conservationist, you probably care already. Don't lose sight of the things that you care about, no matter what, and, and have fun. Don't forget to have fun. <laughs> like we got into this. I I got into ecology and conservation because I was excited about it and I, it made me happy. And I wouldn't have gone into it if it was, if it was a more, if I was a mortician, (laughs) like an undertaker, like I don't want to be sad. So have fun with what you're doing and enjoy the natural environment. And I want to end this with one more new question, which is why do you do what you do? Because I love it. I love being a scientist. I love being able to inspire people, encourage people, challenge people, including myself. I also feel it makes me happy doing it. And I think that I know far fewer people who are happy than on. I know a lot of people who are unhappy with what they do. So I keep doing it because it makes me happy and it keeps my mind. It makes me humble. (laughs) That's definitely science is great at keeping you humble. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. And I had an absolutely awesome time catching up. Thanks. Likewise, Sean. Good luck with the rest of your podcast and happy new year.